314. 314 is Wes Craven. Ooh, interesting. That is interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, if I just check the cast for this. I think this may. I think this is one of the ones where um, the the list of people who were on it includes everyone. Yeah, I think it may have to be our first two-parter. Nice. That's exciting. I have no idea how that's going to work. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I like Wes Craven. Um, I'm one of the odd ducks. Uh, I I came of horror age around the time when, when Scream was just the big, hot thing. Yeah. But I never really liked it. Mm, yeah, no, I, I never really got into Scream either, I must say. He was one of those directors who was always more interesting when his back was against the wall a bit, when he wasn't particularly bankable, when he was having trouble getting stuff off the ground. For some reason, that always brought out the best in him, I thought. Rob Simpson and welcome to Directors Uncut. If this is your first episode, we put filmmakers from all genres and all corners of the globe on a huge list that covers everything from golden era Hollywood journeymen to kings of exploitation. And then we take that big lust of directors and we turn it into a lottery using a random number generator. Whatever number comes out of the hat, myself and a guest host discuss them and their work from two films. This week, I have been joined by Cliff from Devil Times 5 Podcast. Hello there. Hello. And Kat from The Hollywood News. Hello. How are you both? Yeah, not bad, Tom. Just uh, got back from a week in Africa. Cabo Verde. Very nice place. But you see, any follow-up story to that is just going to seem really, really rubbish now. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely covered. Sorry, I had, I had a lovely time, but I am covered in mosquito bites that look horribly like leprosy. Well, I mean, I've just been at home with a toddler, so... Uh... In Starry Top Trumps, I think you win. The, the best I can do is there was an armed robbery at the shop up the road from where I live. I saw the aftermath of that. Wow. CSI van was there. That was that was interesting. Cool. We had a power cut on Sunday night, which, you know, given environments in the world, was a little bit hairy. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it all got fixed. All good. All good. This week, it's the first ever in the run of the podcast. It's our first two-parter. Um, um, Wes Craven is the lucky recipient. In this episode, we're going to be doing, I guess we'd call them two outliers. We're doing Cursed and is, I guess, Breakout in a, in a way of speaking anyway, uh, Last House on the Left from 1972. But before we get to either of those, um, where's Craven? What's our expertise? When we did first hear about him? <laughs> um, when I was a fledgling horror fan around the age of 10, 11, 12, um, I was, you know, working my way up from 12, well, not 12, didn't have 12 ratings back then, but, you know, PG-13 type films uh, to the 15s. And, you know, one day I knew I was going to get an 18 out of the video shop and I knew I wanted it to be a Nightmare on Elm Street, but I was too scared to get it because of that picture of um, Tina on the back cover with the centipede coming out of her mouth. And it freaked me out. But when I was about 12... I finally braved it 
And so I think I think A Nightmare on Elm Street was the very first 18-rated horror film I ever saw. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said on the Larry Cohen episode, there are these, uh, you know, American horror directors uh, like uh, Romero, Craven, Carpenter, Hooper, who are just, like, lauded and um, they're kind of seen as, you know, un- unimpeachable. I don't think that. I think that each of those directors has made one or two really good films and the rest of their filmography tends to be quite mediocre. Um, I do like, uh, you know, it's not so I don't like things like Deadly Friend, Shocker, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But for me, Wes Craven's only done two really excellent films, Nightmare on Elm Street being one of them. And one of the other ones we'll be talking about today. But which one do I mean? <laughs> uh, Kat, how about you? What was your first I was experience saying, with Wes Craven? I mean, it was the same for me. Nightmare on Elm Street was the the first Wes Craven that I that I saw. Um, my mum was a was a teenage mum, and the eighties. She watched all the video nasties, and so I was introduced to horror at a very young age. So I was always very familiar with with the horror landscape, and yeah, as soon as I was. Not old enough, but as soon as I was, you know, in the in the two digits, I was uh, sat in front of A Nightmare on Elm Street. And it's one of the only horror films that has scared me. Like, I, I genuinely didn't sleep yeah. properly because, you know, it's it's the boogeyman that can get you in your sleep. That's just terrifying. There's no way that you can stop it. Yeah, I, I've got to let the side down. I saw Nightmare on Elm Street shockingly late, I'll mm-hmm. be honest. Uh, about two or three years ago, actually, that, that late. Um but, Are you going to play two or three nights ago? No, no, no. As for me and Craven, I I came of Horror Age around the mid-90s, which was probably the worst time to come of Horror Age, really, because, let's be honest, the mid-90s for horror was poor. Yeah, definitely. Really. Um, so my first real experience of seeing what horror could be was Scream. Mm. Yeah, Scream got a lot of 90s kids into horror. Um, yeah. Yeah, whereas... I mean, I consider myself a 90s kid, but as far as horror goes, <laughs> very much 80s. <laughs> That's when I got into it. It was a weird experience, though, because I'm, I'm seeing the sort of um, postmodern reflexive slasher before I've seen any actual normal down-the-line slashes. Mm. So I think that's kind of why I don't like it, really, Scream. Uh, it's an popular opinion, I know, but yeah. No, I mean, the reason I don't like Scream is because I can't stand those those three lead characters who somehow survive every single instalment, um, which <laughs> annoys the piss out of me. It's both the horror films. I don't want to see Courtney Cox and David Arquette again. Well, no, I can't do that, can I? I can't spoil a new one. That would be awful of me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so right, uh, which one do you want to do first? Because Cursed is uh, one of his latter movies. I don't think he had many more after that. I think it was mainly just there. Uh, Scream 4, maybe, something else that I'm forgetting, or The Other End of the Spectrum, which is one of his earlier films, uh, Last House on the Left, 1972. So which one do you want to tackle first? Um, he actually did three after Cursed, Red Eye, my, Red Eye, My Soul to oh, Take, and yeah. Scream 4. Totally forgot about Red Eye, yeah. Um, I don't mind which one to tackle first. I've got more to say about Last House on the Left, probably. Uh, so, Kat, it's your first episode. You get the you get the pick. Well, I, mean, I think it's like... I think it's like film film one versus film seventeen. So I guess do we do we start at the beginning and see how horribly wrong he uh, he ended up? <laughs> Marie and her friend. I feel like a woman for the first time in my life. Two girls from the suburbs going to the city to have a 
good time. Oh, uh, this is my roommate, Sam. Hi, girls. This is my sister, uh, Martha. Uh, Martha, these girls, uh, you know, want to buy some grass. Four killers on the loose. Also looking for a good time. And the road They meet in the last house on the left. What began as a birthday party ends as a nightmare. Cliff, you seem like you had you were leaning into having a lot to say about this. So, what what was this one about? Uh, what's it about? Right. So, it's, it's <laughs> as as any uh, reader of academia on uh, horror would know, it's a remake of Ingmar <laughs> Bergman's The Virgin Spring. Apparently, although you know, when I watched The Virgin Spring as a teenager to find out how close a remake it is, uh, I was kind of disappointed and bored <laughs> by, the, <laughs> by it. Um, yeah. So, um, a girl called Mary is uh well it's almost just it's the eve of her 17th birthday she's going to a concert by the sort of hippie band bloodlust i think they're called with her friend phyllis uh who uh, slightly to her parents consternation although her parents seem that they're you know quite happy to use the excuse of her being out in the house to have a, a sexy evening in during which they talk about almost nothing except their daughter um <laughs> well, it's very strange, though, isn't it? Anyway, also, um, there's a gang of four hoodlums, quite nasty ones, murderers, drug dealers, a, a junkie, uh, and uh, they um, are on the run. They're fugitives. Uh, unfortunately, Mary and Phyllis encounter them. They immediately get abducted. Um, <laughs> Krug's gang drives them in, you know, of all the infinite different directions in 50 miles from the city, uh, he could he could drive them. He drops them off, or the, their car breaks down, to be honest, immediately outside Mary's house. What are the chances? Yeah. <laughs> there's contrivance and there's contrivance. That's just yeah. <laughs> so Mary thinks she's got a chance of um, getting home to safety, but, but yeah, she's up, she and Phyllis are up against it. It's four against two. Uh, they, yeah, they pull no punches. They rape, they murder them. And then um, when the parents realise what's happened, how, oh yeah, that's right, because Krug's gang uh, takes shelter or are actually invited in to spend the night uh, yeah. at, at Mary's parents' house. Uh, and that leads Mary's parents to realise what's been going on, at which point they take revenge. Clumsy, clumsy revenge. Yes. For a clumsily written film. Uh, Kath, what did you think of this one? Well, I mean, I didn't actually sort of watch it until until recently. I mean, I'd heard everything about, you know, how it's the whole, it's only a movie, it's only a movie. It's this really sort of traumatic, traumatic thing. But I don't, I don't know if I've just been tarnished by more modern films. It wasn't, I was expecting to be impacted by it a lot more than, than I actually was. Um, I think the thing that really jarred for me is some of the tone you know it sort of begins with this almost like sitcom scenario with parents and child like chatting about how she's going to go out and you know score some you know weed or whatever and have yeah have some have some fun with a with a mate and it's all like oh you silly goose which just feels very odd and you know then the music as well um oh yeah was a was a very curious very curious choice to have very light-hearted jovial banjo music sort of playing over these quite horrific scenes 
written and sung by David Hess, who plays Craig. Exactly. Yeah. Is it really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of sort of black exploitation adjacent of otherwise Craven there. Um, the yeah. music is something though, because I don't know. I don't know if it's safe. It's hard to take it seriously, but also, yeah, it's hard to take it seriously when there's this gang of rapists. One of the the gang is established as raising a kid on drugs so he can control him. Yeah, and to have basically the monkeys scoring that. <laughs> Weasel and Sadie, junkie and dad. <laughs> all, the, all these lyrics are very on the nose. The bit where, um, uh, what is it? Where, where, where after they've raped Mary, and then David Hess sings on the soundtrack. Now you're all alone, feeling that nobody wants you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit much. You know? it's, it's like to the, the sitcom bit as well. Um, there's no way, like that line, tits, what a tits, it sounds like it's something that here in the barracks. <laughs> is, it, is it channeling like a sitcom there? That's... Oh, yeah, they're very sitcom-y, um, you know, sofa, sofa-based sitcom uh, couple, aren't they, family? Yeah. It did remind me a bit of um, I Love Mallory from Natural Born Girls. <laughs> 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 a bit less incesty. Um, I'm not sure whether it's very good, though, personally speaking. The film itself right i've never really understood or been able to fathom whether i like it or not um because i think it comes with a lot of baggage a lot of weight you know it was a video nasty it's it's wes craven's first movie it's got you know it's, it's regarded as a grindhouse classic um now i've never really understood is it is it good or not am i enjoying it is it am i i just get annoyed most of i get annoyed by those bloody cops the sheriff and his deputy, and just you know, do they even realise that that guy playing the sheriff, Marshall Anker, like with his face, face slapping and throwing his hat down and his double takes, does he even know what sort of film he's in? And I realised watching it last night, I'm approaching this all wrong. It's okay. not supposed to be a brutally realistic, um, you know, intense shocker like say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would be. It predates that. What it's doing, what's what Wes Craven's doing is just making exploitative entertainment. So there's comedy, there's titillation, there's shocks, there's yeah, there's music, there, there's all sorts. It's just he's throwing everything at it, and you've got to take it as as a riot, really. Just a fun, it's a fun film, and watching it, thinking it is a fun film, which clicked with me about I don't know an hour into it last night. Um, I thought actually this is brilliant. Um, I think it really works. And it's the first time I've ever watched it and thought, you know what, this really works. That that scene where, you know, from what I said about the sheriff and his deputy, that scene with the chicken truck and uh, Ada, mm. <laughs> toothless Ada, I mean, it's very funny. <laughs> um, the, the scene where um, the gang, uh, Minus Junior, who's uh, having a bit of a cold turkey panic attack fit, um, are sitting around having <laughs> what looks like Heinz spaghetti out of a tin uh, and meatballs with uh, Mary's parents. And in the background, Junior goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And uh, the gang are pretending to be plumbing insurance salesmen. And Weasel says, oh, he's sorry because he lost a big account. National bathtub and sink. That's <laughs> 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 <was> brilliant. <laughs> it's funny. Um, and it's, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot now okay and how many viewings is this oh uh, i don't know at least half a dozen Uh, years maybe 10 i don't know (laughs) well that's quite a few i mean 
yeah. I've had it on various formats over the years, so you know. Yeah, I'm not sure personally. Um, Kat, you follow that because he's made a great case for it. Yeah, I mean, I say, I mean, this was my this was my first viewing, and I guess I'd sort of been led down the garden path that it was going to be this, you know, really horrific, traumatic viewing experience, and you know the the comedic elements through me. So I guess maybe if I was to watch it with that sort of mindset, I might come out of it with with a slightly different stance. But I guess in in my watching of it, I guess sort of whispers, I think I sort of preferred the remake because the remake I did find a little bit more scary. But then that's what I was expecting from this one and it and it wasn't that. It's an increasingly um, common opinion that as well. Um Alexander Arja remake, is yeah, it? Yeah. Uh no, no, no. Oh, is that, uh, no, that's uh, the Hills of Eyes, isn't it, that he remade? Um I don't really remember much about the remake. I have watched it twice, uh, but I don't remember much about it. Um, Are there villains in it? Because when I was watching it, I was thinking how well costumed the gang are. Um, It's quite sinister that that, um, Weasel's wearing that suit and uh, Krug a nice black shirt and Sadie, like, very fashionable and with that big kind of Myra Hindley hair and... um, and then Junior in double denim, looking like a total freak. Um, they're very well costumed. I was thinking, if this was made today, then all these villains would be greasy, bearded, wearing wife beaters and truckers caps. Is that what the villains are like in the remake? I can't remember. Can't remember anything about them. I think Garrett Dillahunt, who's like the crewker, I think he does have a beard and a trucker hat. I think that's that sort of. <sighs> yeah, I think you might have an old head there. Yeah, <laughs> it's just so obvious, isn't it? They just... all hanging fruit, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the gang in this, it feels like the crew from the young ones, honestly. So yeah. Disparate. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And I think that kind of works to its its favour, really. Cause oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I know it, 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 it probably made this for like 50 pence or something. It's exploitation, so the budgets are notoriously very, very low. It's oh, yeah, you can see the budget on screen, can't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the direct... The, the, the editing is crap, and um, the script ain't much better. Let's be yeah. honest. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the bits where aren't scripted, where they the actors have to improvise a bit. There's a bit where um, Sadie's walking through the woods. She's obviously been told just ad lib, and she goes, "Look at these crazy woods!" <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. That, that was actually oh wow, that's ad libbing one hundred and one there. Yeah. <laughs> It's like other little weird bits that pop up throughout it. Like there's a bit uh, before um, the two girls turn up while they're talking about, oh, this gang needs more women. Mm. Uh, she's been reading uh, Women's Lib, I think, was yeah, the yeah. reference to the make. And yeah, it's kind of a weird like MO that the gang have got. I don't quite understand why anything. No. It, it establishes <laughs> in a radio report that they killed, uh, it was a reference to Virgin Spring that I think uh, they've killed. Uh, a priest, and I can't remember what else it was, but yeah, in that radio report, it is referencing the Virgin Spring, and from that, sure, right, um, they're they're holding up in a a flat. So does that make this the sequel to the Virgin Spring rather than a remake? Uh, to use the uh, my, uh, the common thing now, it's a requel. Yeah, sure, I guess, but it's it's just as a gang. It's, it, I don't know if it makes them more menacing or less menacing. That they seem to be just making crap up as they go along. Hmm. And don't really know what they're doing in any regards. No, I mean the film doesn't make any sense in kind of psychological terms. Um, it's not realistic. Like I say, it's just a fun ride, and I think you have to take it in that spirit. Really, is it fun though? 
<laughs> I mean, there's enough fun stuff in there. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Like the, the comedy, it's it's kind of a calling that maybe Wes Craven never had. Uh, he maybe should have tried his hand at a few comedy movies, like outright comedy movies, but stuff which is notorious is notorious for good reason, I think, still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty vicious, definitely. Um, lots of forcing people to do things uh, with a knife to their neck. It's That stuff doesn't get any easier to watch. So I think kudos to it, a film of this age can still be sort of nasty and nihilistic. Mm. I, the thing to me that I found more traumatic about the film was the reading afterwards and how, you know, the guy playing David Hess was allowed to go. He was he was allowed to go method and, you know... Um, the um, Sandra Peabody was genuinely terrified for her life because Wes just went, yeah, sure, intimidate her. So I guess I think for me, it's doing the reading afterwards that's made the film take on this this other veil. I mean, um, the guy who plays Weasel, he uh, he sort of denounced any involvement in the film. I guess I don't know whether something within he saw something within his character when he was making that film, because a lot of it was improvised that he didn't like, but he's quite outspoken that he wishes that he would, he'd never made this film. That that puts a considerably different spin on it, doesn't it? Uh, the, 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 the actors were given that much freedom and that's where they went. That's. Mm. I mean, I, I think that's always something that's appealed to me about, you know, the best exploitation films really um, is when, right. I think it was actually Wes Craven who said when, um, when you sit down to watch horror film, the first person you want to be scared of is the director. You want to feel that the director is going to take you to places that you don't want to go. Mm. And um, I guess, <laughs> okay, I don't, I've never been an actor, um, but I think a lot of actors are willing to let their directors take them to places they don't necessarily want to go. I'd say that's fair. They like to be challenged, do things they've never done before. Yeah. When I mean, it comes to sexual I, I just, violence, I just, though, it's a, it's a, it, it's kind of icky. Sure, as long as it's you know all simulated and yeah, you know limits are set. There were uh, films around that time that weren't though. Well, when it comes mm. to sexual stuff, anyway. Yeah, well, so like Last Tango, that kind mm. of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, but then you look at something like I Spit on Your Grave and Camille Keaton's. Yeah, still hugely proud of what she did. In that film, just you know, that going through that ordeal. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I'm not an actor, yeah. But I'd like to think that if I was, I'd, I'd be happy to push myself. This is a movie which, uh, is still credited as a classic. So there's a line which these movies have dabbled in, in trying to be extreme and trying to talk about the human condition and trying to talk about the limits that people will withstand before breaking. and as horrible as it is, David Hesco and Method, I think there's movies which have been really, well, the rightfully forgotten about. Uh, well, have you ever seen House on the Edge of the Park? Heard of. David Hess plays a similar kind of character in that. Uh, he and um, Giovanni Lombardo Radice play a pair of brothers, or best friends, whatever they are, who um, terrorise the sort of kind of yuppies in a, uh, at a house party. And... Um, I mean, he's just as nasty in that, if not more so. Mm. But apparently he was a lovely guy. Very lovely guy, apparently. Um, and, what? you know, just liked his folk music. Just liked his folk music and, and playing bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple of Italian uh, rip-offs, well, at least a couple. Um, House on the Edge of the Park being one, 
another one being night train murders, aka don't travel on late night trains, aka second house on the left. Uh, both of which I think are superior to last house on the left, although you know that comes with the proviso that I do have now this revised opinion of, of last house, and um, yeah, uh, that's great. just out of curiosity, I don't know me me uh, history of this specific genre. But as far as rape revenge, how how does is this an early example, first example? Where does it fit in the in the timeline? Uh, well, <clears throat> thing is, I wouldn't say it's necessarily rape revenge because it's not the rape victim doing the revenge; it's her parents. Yeah. Um, so that I mean that that's it's more of a vengeance story, which goes back to to westerns, doesn't it? If not before, yeah. you know, um, it, it has to be influential within in birthing. Oh, popularizing within exploitation circles, that sort of story, anyway. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's clearly one of the earliest of, in the horror genre. Mm. Uh, back to that music, though. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know how to process it. Um, you, you're saying it's like a, a piece of entertainment, but the lines are so blurred. He has the the monkeys playing over like scenes of torture, essentially. I just can't. Mm. I can't wrap my head around it. I really can't. I hope somebody, Kath, can you can you do a better job of it with me? I, mean, I, I don't really know. I mean, I guess I'm not necessarily a fan of the monkeys. So maybe Wes Craven wasn't particularly a fan of the monkeys, and that was like torture for him. It's an oral torture to go with the visual one. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, because it it does kind of uh, on a, it makes you uneasy, but I don't think in the way that it really. Or maybe in the way he's intended. I'm not sure. Well, there's you know there's. Uh... A long tradition of um, of horror films scoring brutal moments with kind of you know upbeat music or or, or pretty sounding music. Um, again, maybe this was one of the earliest examples. But again, House on the Edge of the Park does it. There's this really well, Ritz Ortolani wrote loads of great music for House on the Edge of the Park. There's this really beautiful ballad goes sweetly, oh sweetly, uh, during the opening rape scene, um, and of course. Also, well, Ortolani did that several times, most famously, of course, in Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. Um, and there's also a history of slashes using disco music, which mm-hmm. I've always found quite weird, honestly. But I think it works better there than it does here, but maybe that's just my taste in music. I'm not sure. Uh, my taste in music changes. Where it gets a lot broader when it comes to films and musicals. I can take a lot more of the styles and genres that I wouldn't, normally listen to in my normal life when it's when it's in the service of a film yeah um so i guess wrapping up on last house on the left have we got anything that we want uh anything left to say about it is it a classic is it worth its place in the horror pantheon for one i mean i think it's definitely interesting to watch in terms of wes craven's career i think he learned a lot of things on on this film uh, obviously, it paved a way for you know Hills of Eyes and the People Under the Stairs and stuff that that came just after. So it's 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 interesting from that point of view, and I guess in a way you could argue that Krug is almost a a prototype Freddy. I mean, they share half a name. They both like blades. Mm. You know, they like to to tease and torment their victim with sort of like cruel one-liners. So I mean, I, I know that Freddy is is based on. Uh, a bully that Wes had so maybe even before he sat down to pen Freddie there was some elements that he sort of pumped into this so I think when you watch it amongst his other body of work I think it, it is nice to see how his journey went from that into into other things. I was just wondering how um, Mary's parents 
discuss how they killed the gang members the next morning. So like, it is an odd choice. John goes, well, you know, Krug convinced his son to shoot himself, uh, and then I killed Krug with our chainsaw. And Estelle would say, I slashed the girl's throat and she fell into the pool. And then her husband would say, "Uh, what about the old guy, Weasel? And Estelle would go, well, hmm. (laughs) So gloss over that one, I think. Yeah. It's an odd creative choice, that. (laughs) But there's no blowjobs or chainsaws or heroin in the remake. And that's why the remake is rubbish. (laughs) I mean, I will will give you that, you know, it is, as, as a female, it was very very entertaining to sort of see Weasel get so easily seduced into this scenario. Um, <laughs> when he says, don't you want me to do you good and proper? <laughs> Has Robin Asquith just turned up? <laughs> How can a character be so stupid to say, yeah, I will only have both hands tied behind my back. Yeah. No problems there. <laughs> Nothing possibly could go wrong. Yes. He's just got out of prison. He's probably, you know, blue balls. <laughs> Very easily led as a character. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know what I think about it. Um, I think it's one of these ones that you really form an opinion on, watching it over and over. Because the first time, I think it's... like My opinion of this, the the um, Video Nasties list is some of the movies deserve to be on there, but some of them got a reputation by just being associated with the list. Um, like a reputation bigger than they probably would have had otherwise. Oh, absolutely. There's loads like that, yeah. And on first viewing, it feels a little bit like Last House on the Left is is in that camp. So I think I maybe need to watch it a few times, maybe uh, get a bit more of a complete opinion, really. Uh, no, I mean, I don't think that's fair because I think Last House was a big hit. Oh, it's, oh before, yeah, but it, it, it's better than some of the really, really bad crap on that. Oh, sorry, you're saying the other, Oh, so you're saying it... it, it it's like a sliding scale. It's a sliding scale. It's a you're little bit of both of those, yeah. You're saying it's one of the better ones on the Video Nasties list. Yeah, but I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, it's not a film that got its reputation because it was on the Nasties list. I think it was it already had a reputation. Yeah. It's like, um, what? Uh, don't go in the house. I think that got a bigger reputation because essentially it's one scene there. And I think Almost. It was... Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's, a, that's a great film, but... Um, but yeah, that definitely it, it got greater cachet from being on that list. Yeah. Um, so Arrow have just released "Don't Go in the House" in a lovely uh, three disc box. But on the third on the third disc, it gives you the option of watching "Don't Go in the House" as if you were in a cinema in nineteen eighty one. So it's got twenty minutes of adverts and trailers from the time, and it's an absolute nostalgia trip if you went to the cinema in eighty one. That's a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's- bit better than the thing that they're doing with some uh, movies now and they're just releasing it as a, a mock VHS case. Yeah, that, that's just, I mean, I've running out of space on my Blu-ray shelves as it is without, you know, having these oversized cases all the time. I like I like the American disc um, cases that are like thinner than the UK ones. You can fit more on the shelves. <laughs> they might not look as impressive, but you know. Yeah, I think Raven Banner do that, don't they? Raven Banner have the ones that are teeny tiny. Um, I don't know that label, but 88 Slasher Classics Collection does it. And um, The closest we got here is uh, Artificial Eye, but they're not anywhere near, occurs on Artificial Eye, they're nowhere near as prolific releases as they used to be. Oh, sorry. And also, Artificial Eye always put their spines the wrong way around. Oh, they did, yeah. It's really terrible. Yeah. Mess an entire collection up. (laughs) (laughs) Why did they do that? It was discovered one mile below the hottest sands in Africa a revolutionary new energy source. 
and it's just been stolen. Can you imagine an ordinary machine gun with the destructive force of a ballistic missile? We've got only one chance to get it back. And only one man who can handle the mission. Taking a step away from Cliff and Cat for a moment to pick what's going to be happening on the next Patreon episode. And this segment was recorded with Aiden. But before we look at what's happening in the next episode, if you've liked what you've heard so far, please do consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you have a few minutes to spare, give the show, give Directors Uncut, a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, preferably a five stars. And new on Spotify is the ability to give a show a rating of... It's the star rating out of five. If you haven't got the ability to do either of those sharing is caring share it out on social media whether you're writing a review on apple podcasts or giving us a star rating on spotify or sharing it on instagram or twitter whatever way you you fancy it'll get more eyes and ears on the podcast so let's jump to whoever we're doing next shall we Okay then, so 408 directors, generator number now, and it's director number 96. Nine, six. Nine, six, where are we? Oh, Jackie Chan. Wow, okay. Um, <laughs> Talk about left turns. That, that is something. Oh, right, yeah, because we could do a whole manner of things. I know, didn't he direct some of the Project A films as well? Hang on, I need to have he he's done more than you think. Um, I mean, the, the the famous one, which I will always state, it's probably one of the greatest action movies of all time. But Police Story is one of his. Police Story is such a great film. Um, if you don't like that, I think you just don't enjoy cinema because it's <laughs> it's just wild. But yeah, yeah, he. I mean, I'll be honest. I think Jackie Chan in the seventies and eighties is far better than anything else he ever did. Uh, but let's see, mm. director. I mean, I mean, I do have. I, I will be honest. I do have a soft spot for his American stuff. I mean, I don't think the like grand, the grandest say the Hong Kong stuff, but you know, they're still entertaining. Oh yeah, I mean, he's always entertaining. Um, yeah. Let's see. Oh, Legend of the Drunken Master. That's that's a good one. Um, Police Story. Yeah, Project A. Like you said, he did both of those. Young Master. Oh, he did both of those. Young yeah. Master, Dragon Lord. Yeah, it'll be an interesting episode, that one, I think. Very, very interesting. Yeah, uh, armor of God. There's a lot of stuff to pick there. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah. he died in Armor of God, but then again, Jackie Chan nearly died in every movie he's ever made. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that guy does it. It's just an incredible uh, stuntsman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <sighs> That's quite a left turn, I think, from... Uh, I guess we could call Lee Chang Dong a sort of a Korean social realist. I guess so, yeah. I mean, not on the same level as, say, like a Ken Loach social oh, no. realist, because obviously completely different countries, different social structures, different, you know, societal issues, so you can't really say that without having a straight face. But at the same time, yeah, effectively a lot of dramatic, melodramatic fashion. Again, not to his detriment, it's just that the way he is. Oh, really. yeah. And from that to Jackie Chan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's my vein. Inject me there. Help me! Are you okay? Do you hear that? What's going on up there? 
since the other night, things are happening. Things I can't explain. regular dog his later movie his 17th am i right in remembering that yeah well that's what imdb told me is uh cursed 2005's cursed uh catch you want to synopsize that one well i guess i mean it's it's 2005's cursed but i think it was originally supposed to be 2003's cursed but it actually got um held up in I think one of the worst production hells going. You know, they filmed ninety percent of a film with some different actors and then scrapped it all. So, what we end up with is a it's a brother and sister, um, Christina Ricci and Jesse Eisenberg, who get in a car crash, um, encounter a strange beast, and then start to question whether or not they might be werewolves. It's all set in Hollywood and sort of follows on some of the scream sort of references to films and things and yeah it's just a little bit of a mess really yeah I've, the one thing i've got to jump in first with when it comes to any werewolf movie the one scene that you're kind of waiting for mm. is the transformation yes and this is cgi pretty poor cgi and i'll go further than that i think it may be one of the worst werewolf transformations i may have ever seen well, Rick Baker was originally doing the, you know, prosthetic effects work on it, and uh, he, you know, when they scrapped, <laughs> they filmed in March to June two thousand and three. They filmed for what seven, eight weeks um, with, uh, yeah, Jared Eisenberg and Rich, is it Ricky or Richie? Richie, that was um, Also, Skeet Ulrich and Mandy Moore in the cast, and also Sheila E. Um, and Rick Baker doing the effects work. <clears throat> Uh, the result being an unfinished 90-minute movie of which only 12 minutes made it into what we've got today because they rewrote the whole thing, scrapped some of the characters, brought in new characters, basically refilmed the whole thing um, later that year. And, uh, yeah, so for the reshoots, they got KNB in to do the effects. So Rick Baker never got around to doing the transformation sequence. KNB presumably, well, I don't know if they were even asked to, because then Dimension Films uh, threw out their work as well and replaced it all with this really terrible CGI. Yeah, it's disappointing, really, as a fan of... I am a fan of werewolf movies, as much as I admit that I probably shouldn't be, because more of them are awful than good. But, yeah, uh, yeah, this is a real disappointment, this. Just that weak CGI. And it's just so inconsistent as far as its presentation of the werewolf, because some of it will be CG, and some of it, you get, like, a face that looks animatronic-y, uh, Part which look like it's a costume, a guy in a suit, and then it'll go back to the CG. It just, it reminds me, I can't remember what it was called. I think it was, um, what was it called? Uh, an Australian movie uh, called <clears throat> Raw or something about a giant oh, alligator, was it? Rogue? No, no, it was quite recent, the last few years. Um, uh, Black Water, is it? Um, I can't remember. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, you're thinking of Rogue, I think. 
I'll remember it, but yeah, it's like it has amazing effects on this uh, monster, but only when it stood still. Mm. It looked beautiful when it stood still. Ask it to move an inch of a weight, and oh, no. And this cast is exactly the same. Yeah, I had not seen this before, and I was watching it on the plane. Um, I was watching it on the plane home from my holiday um, because, like, the in-flight entertainment on Tui Airways, under the classic movies section, they've got Scoob, the Scooby-Doo <laughs> film. So, you know, the uh, selection of films on the on the plane weren't very good. So I watched Cursed, and because I was on the plane, I couldn't look up any information about it on my phone while I was watching it. No distractions at all. I had to watch it all in one, you know, <laughs> had, to, had to concentrate on the bloody film. Um I, I had no idea I was watching something from 2005. It felt 1995 to me, part of the reason being how bad the CGI is. Um, but also it's just got that real sort of scream style to it. It's just, yeah, think, um, it's, is it's it a teenage. And, uh, I forgot the right name. Kevin Williamson, he was the yeah, producer wrote, for Scream. scream. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's involved here too. So the connection is is there. Yeah, it's, yeah Kevin Williamson wrote them both. Um yeah, and the only thing that threw me a bit was that uh, maybe say, hang on, maybe it's two thousand five. Is I'm not aware of Jesse Eisenberg having been a thing since uh, back that long. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was very surprised to find out it was as recent as two thousand and five. As recent, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so old. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 not terrible. I enjoyed it at first, to be honest. I thought um, the first half of it, I should say, uh, is perfectly enjoyable. Sort of rubbish teen soap opera fair um it's basically once the werewolves start showing their faces that it just oh it's shit and <laughs> i mean well, i, I yes. was going to check how long that fade to black at the end of the elevator scene is uh where you hear the girl being attacked but you don't see anything because you just get a black screen which was obviously part of the uh cutting it cutting it down to a pg-13 and what a shame what 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 a tragedy to it not is, see the end of that scene. Which is a really well-staged scene, I thought. Yeah, it's all right, yeah. Apart, it, again, apart from the bloody animation. That elevator scene was originally the opening scene in one of the earlier versions with Mandy Moore playing the the person that gets, gets attacked. Um, so I guess that's probably why it feels stronger, because it was going to mm. open a film and, I guess, capture the attention. But, yeah, here having it sort of just peter out. Whereas instead, in this version... Uh, the film opens with a performance by Bowling for Soup. It's it's the broad era of horror, isn't it? Where everything was scored by like a rock soundtrack or a new metal soundtrack. It, it's very much that. And I'll be honest, I didn't think, pardon me, I didn't think Wes Craven was going to do that. I didn't think Wes Craven was going to be one of those guys. Well, I think he kind of had his hand forced. Uh, I think he was originally going to be making yeah. Pulse and then the wine scenes pulled it and said, mm-hmm. we want you to make this. Don't worry, we'll give you like double double the money for it and what he thought was going to be a short project ended up taking a few years i mean i think the editor was hired for like two months and then ended up being on the film for 19 months which is a long time with a That's film a, yeah incredibly long shoot for anything i think you probably get most of lord of the rings done in that one <laughs> i prefer cursed <laughs> but, but everything you say about it i, I still kind of like it it's it's one of those movies where you really should know better. It's it's not particularly good, but it's it's still fun. Yeah, I I, I just you know got bored of the bad, well, bad everything in the second half. It reminds me of one uh, vampire, no, not vampire, a werewolf movie, uh, Silver Bullet, I think it was, yeah. where the movie 
is better than the werewolf stuff in it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I don't remember anything about the werewolves in Silver Bullet. But, but the stuff on the sides, remember all of yeah, it. Yeah, I do remember that with Corey Haim in his uh, wheelchair and all that kind of stuff, yeah. Mm. But, uh, Kat, what did, besides the production problems, what did you think of it, Kat? Well, I first watched it back in the day when I was when it was released to rent. I used to work in Blockbusters, so it came in the shelf. I had 10 free rentals a week, so I would watch everything that came into into the place. And I... I was a teenager around the time of Scream, and I know what you did last summer. So it was it was Wes Craven, it was Kevin Williamson. So I thought, yeah, this is this is this is for me. But I do remember being very disappointed. Um, and the rewatch, I actually didn't mind it as much. It wasn't as bad as I had somehow convinced myself when I was much younger. Um, it almost the opening scene almost felt a little bit like it was trying to be the Lost Boys, which sort of endeared itself a little bit more to me this time around than it did. It did the last time. Yeah, it's got very Lost Boys energy at the start there, yeah. It's just a shame that it's it, unfair, it, it just doesn't keep that sort of fun momentum going. You know, it sort of gets dragged down into this weird boyfriend drama. I mean, I did... And um, and Bowling for Super, no oily saxophone man. No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, I did play Kevin Williamson bingo while I was re-watching it, though, Um because there's a lot of okay. there's a lot of his tropes. So you've got you've got Joshua Jackson, uh, who was obviously Pacey in Dawson's Creek, and he's also in Scream Two. Um, you've got the late night car crash straight out of I know what you did last summer. Um, mm, yeah. Kevin Williamson likes to write for a, a brunette, a brunette lead. Uh, you've got Joey in Dawson's Creek, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Nev Campbell. Um, and boyfriend drama is also a big feature of the Williamson script. You know, you've got Sydney and Billy, and here we've got uh, Ellie and Jake, but they're just not as interesting a couple. I mean, he's hardly in the film. I wonder if um, when, when he was writing his brunette lead, he wrote a note saying, and it would be particularly good if this took two years to film so that her hairline is notably different at the end of the film than it is at the start. <laughs> Wow, we're paying attention. She, she's, she's like 50% spam by the end, isn't she? <laughs> it's, it's such a weird framing for the thing as well, because it, it has the boyfriend drama. Um, it also, they arrive at the conclusion, obviously, it was a werewolf in the woods, frighteningly quickly. Yeah. yeah. It's like five yeah. minutes and, oh, it must have been a werewolf. That's that's straight for your convictions. I've got to say a fair play to you, but... Oh, I don't mind that, you know. It's, it's, it's too overdone, just the, you know, doubting the horror, oh, yeah, doubting but, the supernatural in horror films. Um, but a lot of, well, most of it really is using this framing tool of being sat in, uh, set in uh, Hollywood, and Hollywood after parties and, mm. and booking agents and, and PR, and why it doesn't really have anything to say about it. I, I realise this is probably one of the things which was butchered in the copious reshoot and rewrites, but the end product, it's kind of pointless. The yeah. entire framing device that it sets up. It does seem to be purely so that they can have some cameos by, you know, such incredible... Oh, I mean, he, he probably sold the movie off the back of his own name, Scott Bio, playing himself. <laughs> <laughs> of all the cameos as well, um, it's... It's bizarre because honestly, the, the actual cast is much more impressive than any cameo they could have get at the time. Really, looking at mm. it out, out of context, there, uh, I think I can't remember his name. He's Parks and Rec. He's got a tash. Uh, his name always escapes me. Is it Nick Offerman? 
Yeah. Nick Offerman. Yeah, there we go. It's like a cameo. It's a cameo for him. I think he's like a policeman or a, yeah. an ambulance driver. And it's just around the sides as well. It's Oh, it's him from that thing. It, it's a great example of that TV yeah. show, that sort of movie where you just recognise people from what else they've been in rather than anything they've been in their own, on their own volition. You know what I mean? It's, it's a really weird jarring experience this era of cinema i think yeah. especially horror because you know we're basically talking about a generation on this a-listers yeah i've just noticed that derek mears plays a werewolf um the future the future jason Voorhees yes. in the friday the 13th yeah. remake i mean it is it is but. impressive to sort of watch the film back and see how many people got or maintained a career after after being in it because you know sometimes films like this are a career suicide but you think you know milo uh ventimiglia went on to Heroes and This Is Us and Judy Greer, obviously Halloween, the the new Halloween films. It's it's quite curious how they they manage to sort of get on with this yeah. blip on their CV. Um, there's a mention of Ashton Kutcher having an internet sex scandal. Yes. Now I tried to find. I'll tell you what I did. I googled Ashton Kutcher internet sex scandal and Google just <laughs> gave me a load of porn results. Um, but I I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm not up with celebrity gossip. I know he's got a current internet sex scandal, but did he really have one back then, or were they just making that up, or did they know something? God only knows. Maybe it was just the uh, Weinsteins trying to cover up their own scandals. I mean, I think Bob Weinstein's innocent, isn't he? Uh, mostly, yeah. Uh, or are you working on the basis of no smoke without fire? <laughs> For legal reasons, I'll just say pass. <laughs> but yeah, it's, for me, it's that generation of horror movies where I think I... I struggle to be a horror fan during this generation and uh, it's perfectly characteristic of that generation where it's it's kind of showy and flamboyant but ultimately harmless and doesn't really have any teeth it's trying to be too many too many things to too many people but it's it's fine it's fun but i don't think anybody could become a horror fan off the back of this not even even close (laughs) i don't think it's surprisingly sloppy as well like there's uh you know that scene where it's actually a dream sequence uh, but Christina Rich is standing uh, at her front door, and from the f- shot of her from the front, her wind's all uh, her wind's all blowing, her hair's all blowing in the wind. And then when when you get the reverse shot, the back of her head, absolutely straight, no movement in her hair at all. Um, it cuts between those two shots a few times. Like, what the fuck's going on? And that bit where um, Jimmy Jesse Eisenberg wakes up oh, that bit totally you know it so wants to be an american werewolf in london yeah. at times doesn't it that bit where he wakes up naked in his front garden and then you know jumps in jumps up the wall through the window and the stunt double doesn't look anything like him <laughs> it's just a weird thing as well it's got a bit later on where werewolves can climb on the underside of ceilings now <laughs> uh, i missed that bit of <laughs> the entirety of werewolf you know fiction and history um, did you pick up on the fact that it's very important that Jimmy, Jesse Eisenberg's character as a hero, is A, not gay. That's very important that he's not gay. And B, he only becomes sexually sexually alluring once he's straightened out his kind of Jewish curly hair. It's it's really dodgy. 
it's very there's like the era of romantic comedy, isn't it? Uh, where they have the girl with glasses, and oh, suddenly they take the glasses off and then straighten her hair. And, oh my god, she's a stone cold stunner. It's very much that era of Hollywood writing, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's all that, I think, or something. It was yeah. called. I can't remember. I'm not big on this sort of the thing. But yeah. And the other, the other thing that made me think it was a '90s film when I was watching it is the whole concept of doing a werewolf curse as a sexually transmitted disease, which is so '90s. It's kind of been played out as well by vampires. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. it it does some interesting things though. Uh, with uh, it dances around interesting things with the werewolf, like the pentagram on the hands is sort of a sign. It's a very obvious sign. Doesn't really. <laughs> does, yeah, it, it's a bit of a giveaway, but it doesn't really do anything with it. You know, I told you they're mosquito bites. <laughs> <laughs> I think the worst thing you can say about it is it kind of makes you sad that uh, Wes Craven didn't get to make the. The, the werewolf movie that he wanted to and I'm assuming it's producers because it's always bloody producers yeah they like, screwed well, it up for him definitely yeah but I mean it would have been a very very different film who knows if the original script was any better but just having Rick Baker on board would have made it better I'm sure yeah because it's like the first draft of Day is it Day of the Dead yeah Day of the Dead was vastly different to the one that he produced it's <laughs> talking about Romero now yeah was it Day yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He want, Romero wanted to make um, a basically a war movie about zombies, um, but the budget just wouldn't stretch to that. So he kind of so so he did a he did a war movie, but set entirely in a bunker. Um, so without the big scale, you know, attack sequences or anything. And then come Land of the Dead, he was able to pick up some ideas from his original Day of the Dead concept. Yeah. Go with that. So, um, any any closing thoughts on on Cursed? Where's the gore? <laughs> I, want, I want gore in my horror films. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's got some scratches. I mean, that's as close as it gets. I some know. bloody scratches. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I like. You know, I like how you know. Again, we've got a character learning everything that they can from a comic. Again, it's Jimmy, Ooh, like, like yeah, like Sam in the Lost Boys is reading reading a werewolf comic because everyone knows that comics are law and that we should follow yeah. everything that they that they say so yeah it was a nice little nod back to to the lost boys but yeah i think a lot of the film is just it would be interesting to see what could have been because they the footage exists but it just doesn't have an ending i think so you know maybe one day we'll get a release that has some more of the other cuts so we can see what what might have been and be fair, he does also use internetsearch.com to do his research. Yes. Good old internetsearch.com. It's, it's still less transparent than when they've got a Microsoft deal and they use Bing. I mean, who uses Bing, really? <laughs> oh, uh, I'm an IT engineer. A lot of people use Bing because it's the default and they don't know how to change it. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm, I'm wrong on that one. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, any, anything else on Cursed? Are we all... Um, I think it was his uh, 22nd film, not his 17th. Uh, that's if you. That's probably only if you count his TV movies and his porno. And I watched that in preparation for this as well. <laughs> and it's quite good. Well, it's like 70s later, wasn't it, where they were taking it seriously as an artistic movement yeah. rather than salacious, sleazy Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, not, it's, it's not very erotic. It's, quite, it's one of those disturbing ones. Hmm. Uh, so that kind of segues uh, nicely into just, I know we can't, make a opinion off the back of these two movies because that's a really awkward uh, conclusion you'd have to come to as the guy who made both of these movies what is he like so 
I guess I'm going to have to lean on uh, your experience of Wes Craven as a whole. So, as a director, what are our thoughts? What are our opinions on him? I mean, I've not I've not seen all of his stuff. I definitely haven't gone this far back into his his porn career. Um, <laughs> but I think I think like you know like a lot of of horror directors, he was saying at the at the start, he has been sort of lauded as this you know perfection you know horror perfection personified. And I think, you know, Cursed especially proved that that wasn't always the case. And, you know, we maybe just had, you know, the two or three really, you know, really good things. Um, and maybe it would have been nice to see him do some more stuff. Because, I mean, he directed, you know, he directed Meryl Streep to an Oscar. Um, so he definitely had a career outside of horror. But I guess no one wanted to give him that chance, which is a, which is a shame. Um, I think it's it's true. Just to build on that, I think it's just true of all those uh, directors who survived the seventies. Their critical receptions kind of bloated, and this phrase that gets uh, bandied about masters of horror, I, I don't think there is any. Honestly, mm. but, well, well, I think there are, but I don't think. Well, I don't com- think not in the American continent anyway. Yeah, I don't think Wes Craven's body of work is strong enough for. I mean, he's certainly. You know, <laughs> he was certainly obsessed with horror. It's pretty much all he ever made. But, you know, he, he's, for me, it's Nightmare on Elm Street. It's Last House on the Left. And um, that's about it. Um, I like, like I said, I like Wes Craven's new Nightmare, Shocker, well enough. The original Scream, well enough, I suppose. But, you know, but, but, but everything else apart from apart from the fireworks woman, who's porno, is kind of veering towards mediocre. That's a pity. Because the two that I really love, and I know I'm kind of swinging against the fences here is uh people under the stairs and uh, serpent and the rainbow which just as outliers i think uh i understand why people don't like him but at the same time i like the risks that he's taken there he's yeah i to be fair i haven't watched either of those since i was a kid so i, I do need to revisit them yeah but uh yeah it's not the most positive episode on wes craven i believe so any any saving graces any so when he was good then what do you think of him when he was good just the Nightmare on Elm Street is fucking banging. Mm. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's it's one of the best horror films of the eighties. It's um, one of the best films of the eighties. It's it's iconic, and you know he just really struck gold with that one. And I don't think anyone could argue that Nightmare on Elm Street isn't um, an absolute you know masterpiece. Yeah, as an effects movie as well. There's bits in there where it's just how did he do that, and mm. where did that imagination come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still theories about what he did to Johnny Depp. It's. I mean, I've never understood what what does happen to Johnny Depp in that film. <laughs> it makes no sense, but it's it's fun. And also, I've never understood how that is Johnny Depp. Don't look anything like him. Well, people grow. Uh, in his case, it's just taking a lot of drugs and being insane. I think made him look how he does now. <laughs> exactly, but yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street is is obviously the the top. I really like. New Nightmare, and I guess New White Nightmare was in a way a, a prototype for Scream and Scream. I think Scream Three sort of leans heavily into the the Hollywood side of things as well. Um, I think for me personally, it would be Nightmare, New Nightmare, and maybe Scream. I kind of feel with Scream, I've watched it too many times. You know, you sometimes you watch a film enough and then you fall in love with it. I think the the opposite is also true. I feel like maybe I overdid Scream when I was younger, and now it doesn't quite hold that same candle that it used to for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, imagine we've all got movies like that. 
I just don't think screens aged that well. It was it was certainly um, refreshing when it came out, but I think it looks a bit bit. Um, I think uh, it was um, damaged by its success. Honestly, I just think it looks. What's the word I'm looking for? Just feel it. It just feels a bit thin gruel, you know. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's just because it was very successful, people were like, "Oh, I can have a go at that," and everybody did have a go at it, and it completely diluted what was special about Scream in the first place. There were, there were bad times when every horror film poster was photos of six teenage faces or young adult faces and a white and red text. And yeah. I mean, that, that was the death of good horror, horror movie posters for a long time. I heard about your mom. Is she all right? Hey. It doesn't feel right. I think we should go away. Two of us. I think you should take it easy at the moment. Mom, where did you go? I can't tell you. Not yet. So, I close the show out. Um, other things that we've been watching away from the featured director, anything that you, you want to bring up and talk about for a few minutes? Thinking about what am I allowed to talk about. I'm covering Glasgow at the moment, so I think I'm although technically by the time this goes out, um, I've been watching Glasgow Fright Fest films. There's a couple of couple of good Irish horrors that are screening. Um, you Are Not My Mother being one of them. Um, I really hope that's about Cats later. I mean, this is, that is the one problem. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure how big EastEnders is in Ireland, but I'm not necessarily sure if the director is aware that everybody when you hear that title that is familiar with these standards is going yes i am so so yeah um but get past get past the title it's a it's a really cool sort of like irish folklore it's kind of a little bit it's a folklore that's not set in a house in the woods it's set in a, a council estate in in south dublin and it's got some nice of Candyman vibes as it tells a sort of a changeling story um, so that one's that one's really good. Um, but I'm, in terms of films at the cinema, I guess I'm just waiting for the Batman. Hmm. Um, I'll I'll jump in, and uh, this is probably going to be controversial. I don't know, but uh, Hellbender that's new on, yes. on Shudder. Yeah, I saw that at the Soho Horror Festival last November. Yeah, I caught it at Fantasia. I'm not sure I'm a fan of it. There's aspects that I very very much do approve of uh, the aesthetic that. They have this sort of running motif of the touch this book and they have this sort of psychedelic vision scape. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. The imagination behind it is stunning. The, the, the actor, which the Adams family, which is a very hard thing to say without following it. Who did they do? And clicking. But yeah, but other than the sort of, it looks very, very it's, it's shot beautifully. Uh, those scenes are, are great. The acting is great. The little musical interludes are fun. But it doesn't really have a point as a story. See, uh, yeah, I'd agree, but I like see, it. See, I, I like it because of the aesthetic. Yeah, I, I really like it, um, and I think for me, watching it as as a mother, I think I connected it to it in a way that other people aren't necessarily because you know you've got um, you've got Izzy, the daughter, and then you've got mother. She is a you know she's a nameless mother, and the whole thing with a with a hellbender is you know when they come into age, they they have to take over from from the existing hellbender and i just found a lot of 
sort of maternal issues sort of were randomly thrown up in me when I was watching it about, you know, my daughter replacing me. And since I've become a mother, I've almost lost some of my identity. I mean, to my preschool, to my to my daughter's preschool, I'm literally known as Aurora's mother. That they don't know my name. I'm just her mum. And I, I kind of connected in with with the mother more than Izzy and these fears of I guess of being replaced and losing losing her identity. So I think it hit me in a in a different level. But and you know also the the music is just amazing. So and it looks really pretty. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, releasing LP of that and I'll be all over it. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, Cliff, anything that you've caught? Um, God, it's been all about the horror, hasn't it? Um, I don't know whether to change things by just you know doing three uh, <laughs> three recent movie releases um, that are all quite arty. Should I do that? Um, so, what have movie been putting out? Some, there's a film called Black Medusa, which is from Tunisia, uh, and it's um, it's about a, a woman who is a serial killer. Uh, she's mute, um, it turns out, kind of by choice, uh, to probably to make herself seem more vulnerable, to make it easier for men to think that they've got, you know, got the advantage over her when they take her home. Um, but then she, uh, you know, kills them in various vicious ways, including one guy that she appears to rape to death with a snooker cue. Yeah. Um, despite fresh. that, yeah, despite that, it's, um, I mean, it, it, it's it's moody, it's black and white it's slow it's um it's one of those films that ends up on movie and (laughs) and on very esoteric lists of the best horror films of the year Uh, i wouldn't go that far um it's fine it's good but um, compared to uh time alone at night yeah 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 yeah. and um i mean it seems a bit too easy to compare it to that just because of the yeah, kind of North African setting and the, uh, um, the fact it's in black and white and it's about a woman who kills people. Uh, but having just said that, it's really obvious why it's being compared to that. It's very, it is kind of similar. Um, I, I prefer Black Vegeta. I think it's, I think it's better than Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Um, they also put out a German film called The Human Factor or Human Factors, which um, is about a couple who run an advertising agency. Uh, they go take their family away to the, their holiday home, and um, it turns out that they've been their latest client because they're desperate for money is a far right political party, and this seems to you know cause a few protests uh, aimed at them. Or does it? What's going on? Uh, it shows you a key scene from various different. Um, points of view, including that of their pet rat at one point. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's worth sticking around for the pet rats flashback, <laughs> which Great. also connects with Wes Craven, um, who did a dog a, fla- a dog's flashback in Hills of Ice Part 2. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's better than that. Don't worry. <laughs> and then, of course, there's Sailing Sharma's new one, Petite Mama, um, which is really delightful. Um, Stars two very young um, twin actresses, identical twins. Uh, it's about a, a girl who's um, uh, well, she's she's in the in the for- a woodland home with her parents. Um, her mum. This is after her grandma's just died. Her mum vanishes one morning, uh, and then the uh, little girl goes out into the woods, finds another girl who looks exactly like her and has her mum's name. And appears to be her mum from twenty years ago. Um, it's it's pretty odd and nice. 
I, I really, I, I don't think Celine Sharma. Um, well, the thing about her, I, I've liked all her films, and plus she makes films that I wouldn't normally wouldn't normally appeal to me. Why would I want to see a film about two, two really small girls talking in the woods and playing <laughs> make believe with each other? You know, just totally not of any interest to me. But she, she's such a good director; she makes you care. Yeah, and the only other one I've seen of no is a uh, No Exit, which is uh, on Disney Plus Hulu in America. I think it's it's done it run in the festival circuit. Um, ostensibly, it's about a girl who escapes a uh, lock in drug therapy uh institute in america she escapes because uh, her mother is she had a brain aneurysm but she's drove straight into a storm uh, and in the storm um she has to stay there in this uh, temporary place just while the storm blows over but in the car park is a girl who has been kidnapped and tied up and one of the people who were involved in that uh, is hiding in this place that is a uh, resting spot uh, out of the, the snowstorm and it's, it's just one of these um one location thrillers uh sort of suspense thrillers that you don't really get an awful lot anymore uh, and i'm not going to say it's a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination but it's quite a little mean-spirited violent movie and also it's a type of movie that you don't really get anymore and that these sort of things once upon a time it was they were just dead and through the medium of streaming They've been given this chance to sort of be out there in the world again. Uh, interesting casting as well. It's got uh, mostly uh, people of colour casts. I think there's one white guy in it. So it's giving these roles, which would just generally go to that guy from that TV mm. show, as somebody who's wouldn't have had a chance otherwise. But yeah, it, it's not great. It doesn't break any moulds, but it's just one of those. It's a fun 90 minutes. Is it Australian? It's got an Australian director. Uh, no, no, it's not Australian. Um, okay. I think it's set in Pennsylvania. Uh, okay. Yeah. But it's, it passes the time. Tight little thriller. Not enough of those in the world. Everything has to be two hours plus. <laughs> That's us for another episode. Thanks for sticking with us to the end. If you have any questions or comments on the films we've covered recently or their makers, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore RJ Simpson or email us at directorsuncutpod at gmail.com. That's directorsuncut pod at gmail.com where can we catch you both online where else can we catch you cat um i am on twitter at gizmo shikari and uh my writing is on thn so www.thehollywoodnews.com cliff devil times five horror podcast uh which is devil x5 uh, on twitter and uh i am smogo on twitter s-m-o-g-o Excellent. So for the next episode, it's going to be Jack Audiard, a cutting from the Patreon archive. And the next um, Patreon episode, new Patreon episode, is going to be for Jackie Chan. So look forward to that, and we will see you in the next one. (laughs) 